Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, friends. We are so excited for you to hear from our guests today. So we have some friends of ours from Techie for Life, but also friends because we are both parents of some neurodiverse young adults. And we have Patricia and Maximilian here, and they've been happily married for 30 years. And they have a son who is in his early 20s that is extremely intelligent. We call them twice exceptional, where he's extremely intelligent on the one hand and creative. And on the other hand, has high functioning autism. Um, And with that comes some anxiety and OCD. Their son's been dealing with those issues since he was 12. And we're going to hear from them and their story. And we asked them to come on so that we could just hear from a set of parents who've kind of been through the ringer and then come out the other end. It's not over, (laughs) but I think at this point, it seems like most of the, the crises or scary stuff is done. Maybe not. Maybe you don't feel that way. Uh, but it seems like your son's doing really well and he's living independently. He's attending college with some struggles, but doing fairly well. Would love to hear uh, from you about how you think he's doing. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So great to be here. I'm so happy to share because it's it's been quite a journey. I don't know how hard it was for you to find people who understood, but for Debbie and I, we we would talk and people would just look at us strange, like we were talking a foreign language or about an alien world, when they would say, well, why don't you just do this parenting technique? Or why are you allowing your son to do that? And they just didn't get it. And it's not that they were dumb. It's just, how can you understand something you've never experienced? Mm-hmm. And so we, we're excited to share your story and have you share your story so that other parents can feel some camaraderie. Um, it's also cathartic. Um, to be able to speak and hear other people's experiences. And I I know I, I feel some connection with you, Max, because as fathers, we experience, I think, our neurodiverse children a little differently than mothers, but everyone has their own personal experience as well. So we'd like to just start with, um, I don't know, sharing when your story began and when you realized that our child isn't normal or isn't the same. And was that a good thing or a bad thing? Good, good question. Um, In hindsight, I think the story began at birth. When um, our son was adopted at birth, and uh, he always was a sweet boy, but he had the most amazing temper tantrums. Like we would call it the dying swan routine where he would just be on the floor writhing and nobody could help him. And it could be the smallest little thing that would trigger it. It could be that the strawberry was touching the vanilla ice cream and he would totally lose it. And we learned to deal with it and we never realized that it's actually could be a symptom of uh, autism. And uh, 
So we just dealt with it and shot. He was um, just different. Um, and um, it's also been a really clingy kid. So not what you would typically expect um, when you hear autism diagnosis. It was really fixated on me. He would like hang on me all day long. And uh, well, how would you say? How would that start? Yeah, I agree with all of this. My son had a variety of challenges, um, you know, all of which kind of disguised a bit the, you know, neurodiverse uh, challenges that he he faced. He had issues with his eyesight. Uh, there were other issues that, you know, kind of arose um, uh, of being massively dyslexic, for instance. And so all those things kind of came together in this cocktail that we tried to, you know, manage over time. And, you know, it was never entirely clear to us at least um, up to a certain, you know, to, to a certain point that it was really, uh, you know, a, a, an autism an autism challenge. I think it came out uh, increasingly in school, but uh, I think it became really, really clear, you know, when he was, as Patricia said earlier, you know, 12, uh, maybe 12 years old, um, you know, and, 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 and so some of the, some of the things we had seen before, um, you know, came to the fore then because some of the, some of the other challenges um, were, were overcome. You know, he was unbelievable in overcoming the dyslexia. Um, uh, he was incredible in, 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 you know, kind of managing through the, the, the issues he has around he had around his eyesight. And so, you know, it, it then kind of crystallized as he, you know, came out of that uh, the neurodiverse challenges he was he was facing. I think that's um, a really important thing you're sharing there, and we can relate to it. Also, is it, when there are other diagnoses. And things going on, it's really, it, it's complex and it's hard to sort out, you know, what's causing what and what's really happening here. We, we went through a lot of that because our son didn't get diagnosed on the spectrum until he was 13 because there was other issues going on. And, and when they're also intelligent, I think it confuses it if they're a lot higher IQ. Or if they yeah, can communicate yeah, well, or they have mm -hmm. good eyesight or good eye contact. Everyone says, oh no, they're not autistic because they, they talk well or they're, or they're clingy and they're Right. Whatever. And so people yeah. tend to put them in a box, but also I think a lot of high functioning autists were diagnosed younger with ADHD and anxiety. Yeah. And then as the developmental gap widens at around 12 years old, they yes. start falling behind enough that you're like, it's not just ADHD. There's something else going on. Right. When did you start realizing there was something else besides just he's a, an intense personality, which he is. When did you realize it was something more than just intensity? So I think the, the real struggle started when he was about 12 with severe anxiety. Um, and we're talking, he, he was only able to live in one place in the house under a blanket. That was the only place he felt safe. And um, I had to walk with him in lockstep. If it was not in lockstep, he was not safe. Uh, to the bathroom, into his room. He could not dress himself uh, alone without somebody being there. Um, he was just terrified and um, really um, irrational anxiety. He, he was afraid a sniper would shoot him from outside the house. Vivid imagination. And then vivid imagination. He, he would calculate the probabilities 
right? He, he would ask, <laughs> right? <laughs> so what's the probability that a, a sniper with that kind of rifle would shoot me from that tree? And it, it's like, wow, okay. So, yeah. right. And, and luckily at that time, I started to find a therapist for myself because I thought I'm a bad mom. I'm, I'm not like um, helping my son enough or like my parenting skills need some major overhaul. What did we do wrong? And, and I mean, we saw the pediatrician and he said, oh yeah, that's normal. They'll grow out of it. Um, and <laughs> and then that that therapist said to me, this is not normal. You need to see a psychiatrist with him, you need to see a therapist. And um, and that was a saving grace for us because, I mean, he then started uh, dialectic behavioral therapy with a very knowledgeable therapist. Um, and he started on medication uh, for his anxiety. And that made a major difference. I mean, he it took about a year though, a year of intense therapy. Um, and medication and yeah go ahead yeah just a just a couple of points debbie you mentioned diagnosis uh, of your son with 13 right uh, our son was not diagnosed till he was 18 oh wow uh, technically not diagnosed and it was still a diagnosis diagnosis around uh, anxiety and adhd and ocd so this you know concoction of diagnoses that um you know, in a way, are being slapped on the, on the neuro, uh, you know, the, the non typical behavior. So that's one thing I would say. The other, um, uh, the other thing uh, I would mention is that you know the, the the phase that Patricia just mentioned, where he had these just massive, massive anxieties, you know, was was a bit of an inflection point for us as well. And I know for me in particular, because I I, I tended to believe that my son would uh, eventually outgrow. Uh, these challenges and and it became very obvious that he that he could not right not only was the this an inflection point I think for for him um, but it certainly was an inflection point for me personally as well because it it, it required me to embrace the fact that he was different um, and there was a there was a diagnosis there and a real challenge there and the uh, you know, to this day, within uh, parts of my family, the fact that there's a diagnosis is still not accepted. It, there's still the sense that he's just a little different, a little weird, maybe, but that's not much of an issue. So, this broader acceptance that you also referred to is, is certainly something that uh, you know has not fully penetrated all, all parts of our family. Hmm. Yeah, I remember our, my parents taking our sons to help us out when we were overwhelmed. And they happen to both be adopted as well. Um, and, and having them discover that that love and consistency and good parenting actually wasn't enough. When up until then, they really just assumed we weren't trying hard enough, maybe, or that we could do it better. And we were definitely struggling as a couple. I, our biggest fights were over how to help our sons because we loved them and it caused so much anxiety and it really took a toll I think emotionally, because we wanted to do it right. We kept believing if we just had the right medicine, the right therapy, the right doctor, they could be therefore normal. And um, it was kind Can of- Can you bring up a very good point, Jason? Because I, I think 
a lot of as a couple um since we're talking to other parents um it's very often that you think you need a different approach right and you don't know what you're doing wrong and you think one person is maybe too permissive while the other person is too much a drill sergeant and you're stuck in between that dichotomy where you try to figure out what is the right guidance and how do you deal with someone who has like a rock brain who is not flexible who who doesn't learn from right. any mistakes who just um repeats the same thing over and over again and you're like it, this just can't be right you're, you're trying what works with your neurotypical children and it just doesn't work and then and, you're then you're feeling judged because you know you're a helicopter parent. You know you're that parent, right? That oh, totally doing all of the executive functioning for them and helping them with all of their little things. But if you didn't, they would just crash and burn. But people don't understand that we have to choose between a helicopter parent because that is what's necessary to get them through very often. But then also we know that we can't be the solution for them the rest of their life, but that's a constant battle that we have internally about, am I doing too much or too little? Like you said. When you get people from like the old older generations that are like, that kid just needs a spanking. And looking back, I think, wow, I could just spank the autism right out of him. Boy, (laughs) would have done that. But I I think you bring up the good point also of letting them fail. Um, The problem is that, I don't think our son really learned from his failures because mm-hmm. let's say he got a bad grade in one class because he didn't turn in his papers on time because he had them in the bottom of his backpack for about two months and every reminder did not work. He would not do better the next month. He, he would And he would blame his teacher for not reminding him. It's like he wouldn't be able to take the ownership and learn from it or then create a reminder on his phone that would make him so mad. It, it's really a struggle. Maybe one more point to the notion of journey. So similar to you, the the challenges that our son faced certainly you know, put a strain on our relationship. I would say that the journey is still not done, right? So in reflecting on this, you know, while he is fairly independent now, there's still questions as to how much of a scaffold do you want to provide? How much support do you want to provide? Uh, how how strictly you want to guide or interfere? And this, these are still discussions and debates. Right. Uh, it's, it's not clear always as to what the right, what the right path is. And what's right right now, maybe different later on, you know, that that's the other part of this and what was working before may not work now, or, you know, it, it's, um, well, you learn how to be flexible and where you're at right now in the moment. Agile. You have to agile. be agile yeah. as parents. Do you remember the time when you thought, wow, I, I just, I'm so excited for him to get to be 18. Cause once they're 18, then we'll somehow be free of all the hard stuff. And I remember thinking, I could, we, if we can just make it till he's eighteen, and by the time he was like sixteen, I'm like, oh crap! <laughs> there is, there's at least six or seven more years ahead of us. And we usually tell people that it's about their mid twenties till they really hit their stride, and until then, you're kind of on the hook as parents, not legally, but the parenting doesn't end just because they turn eighteen. 
Um, that age was set because of typicals and from past culture. And, you know, the, the iGen generation born between 94 and 2010, they, they are developing later, dating later, doing adult things later, like first jobs, first loves, wanting to launch. So it's the whole culture, but especially with neurodiverse young adults, they need a lot more handholding and they need cocoons where they're protected long enough till they really do blossom and they're ready to fly. Um, it's a lot yeah, more. Work. The, I think the, I'm not sure that the 18 uh, year finish line was relevant as much as it presented almost a trigger point for us to consider a different form of, of intervention because we realized we were running out of time with regards to doing and intervening um, in a in a in an impact <clears throat> excuse me in an impactful way, and so we decided uh, when uh, I think turned seventeen. Correct me on the no, exact. when he was just sixteen. Sixteen uh, to uh, have him uh, go into a wilderness program. So after heavy consultation and uh, a very 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 difficult decision making process between us we decided to send him to to uh, utah to actually attend wilderness um a wilderness camp um and uh, effectively find other support than than ourselves um and that was an interesting experience in its own right and then from there he uh went to a high school therapeutic high school um so we visited you know the interaction was frequent but we, we made a choice to um, also have other professionals help us with the parent, parenting process and the cocoon that you that you mentioned. So it's you know the there was there was no perception of finish line. It was really more uh, um, a forcing function, I would say, relative mm -hmm. to making sure we did all the right things we could at the right time. Right. I think your son was an atypical atypical. Which puts him in the minority of the minorities, right? He's more extreme in his issues, and I don't know if that has anything to do with personality or genetics or adoption. I, I don't. There's a lot of sophisticated things, but um, most parents aren't going to need to put their son, have him go to such to such a treatment as a wilderness program. And I just to stop for a second. There's been a lot of uh, media, negative media lately about treatments. Um, and treatment centers and your decision to put him in wilderness. I want to just point out, it wasn't because um, he was a drug addict and wanting to kill people and getting into fights. What was the goal for a wilderness program? Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, let me take that. Um, we noticed that we ran out of options with stopping a trajectory that he was in. Um, when we decided to send him to wilderness, he more or less cut all social ties with everyone in school and he developed a severe gaming addiction. So his whole world was Xbox and he would forget to eat and drink. And when we asked him to come to like a family dinner, he would have a major anger attack. Yep. And he started to be very aggressive. Um, 
and our parenting tools, we were just at the limit of shutting off the internet, um, really working on um, setting those limits. We had to be on it 24-7 and we were just exhausted. And right. uh, we, we were at the limit of what we could also teach him. And I mean, that decision to send him to wilderness was one of the hardest we made. And luckily we found a program that focused on boys with similar issues. So he, he, it was not, as he said, with drug addicts, but more with kids who needed a reset. And he actually said to us that the decision to send him to wilderness and then to the therapeutic boarding school um, was one of the best we could make for him. How long after you sent him did he say that? Because it wasn't at the beginning, I'm guessing. No, it was not in the beginning. It was not during, and it was not right after. Um, <laughs> right. I, I think, what would you say? Yeah, probably about two years. After. Two years after. Yeah. Uh, so just to kind of round out the, you know, very difficult time. So gaming at the prediction, um, he didn't eat enough and we couldn't force it into him. It was at a point where it became actually medically challenging and uh, you know the third factor which compelled us was that he was actively looking for other uh, social groups um, in particular uh, right-wing social groups uh, to attach to uh, through the internet hmm. and you know we wanted to just break this and uh, you know not end up in a situation where we would face radicalization of whatever form right he was, in a way, very hard to influence for us, but very, very easy to influence through through others, uh, through the choices he made. Right. They're highly susceptible and influenceable from areas they they shouldn't be. Uh, there's actually It's actually quite common for our students that we work with to be extreme politically. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, it's, but they're usually half and half, left and right. And, and you can never tell which one it is. Kind of just depends on who who got to them first in some ways. <laughs> the radical. I think there's something that appeals to the whole black and whiteness of it. Mm-hmm. I think I'm right, you're wrong. This is, you know, it's that very extreme and they don't, because they don't do as well in the nuanced gray areas. And so to have a black and white strong. Right. <laughs> That's yeah, great. very insightful comment. The you know clearly, you know, it was a white and black. You know, the, the, on the on the very positive, however, the <clears throat> you know his perspectives around that have entirely balanced out. And uh, you know, while he still plays, uh, you know, he finds a way to put some structure around that. I would still contend he plays too much, but you know, it's not that he only can survive in front of a. You know, he has embraced the fact that he needs to um, nourish himself appropriately to a level. We would still challenge his choices in that regard, but it's not uh, at a point where, you know, the doctor would ring the alarm bell relative to his body weight. Right. And I'm listening to the pattern, and it's pretty common for young teenagers to become obsessive with video game and screen use. Most typical kids move get bored with that and move into girls and dating you know at around 15 16 17 and that's what your son is doing 
now he's kind of obsessed with girls and that's a great problem. It's developmentally appropriate for being five years behind or three years behind, whatever it is. One, one thought about wilderness, I just like to mention, but the point of wilderness from what, from my perspective, and I was a trail guide at a wilderness program for a short time, and I really value what they offer. It's not a behavioral boot camp type thing where they scare you into being, what's the word, obedient. It's, it's much more about breaking down all the pollutions, taking away all the, the crap and getting back to the simple basics of, am I good enough? Can I do hard things? And who am I? And I love that all the pollutions are taken out and, and they get to start and rebuild themselves. And it really is a, re- a reset, like you said. So Yeah, I think that the biggest reset was having no electronics, being in nature, being part of a group. I, I think these were the main things. I don't, I don't think there was like um, any drill sergeant therapy. whipping yeah. thing going on, right? This is, it's like you, you hike and you bike and you, it's. Uh, and he interacted the whole time. There's social going on right. all the time. And you're right. And you reflect on it. Yeah. And he got a lot of feedback on, on his behavior. So actually, um, if I may say one thing, the, what we've noticed from wilderness and from the therapeutic boarding school, the biggest behavioral changes for our son came from feedback from peers. And it was not us parents, it was not the teachers, it was not the therapists, it was feedback from peers when they did a group reflection. That had the biggest impact on how he sees himself and how he feels he is relating with others. Which is why it's so hard when someone who's neurodiverse tends to be isolated and and avoidant because life is so hard and relationships are nuanced and they're hard and they're already square pegs in a round whole world. And how do you get them around peers where it's safe to get feedback, where you believe in yourself enough that you can even receive it so that you have, you have to build up their backbone enough just to be able to hear feedback. And that takes a lot of extra work and effort. So if there's parents out there that are thinking, wow, I, you know, I would never send my child to a treatment center if that's like giving up on them. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I can understand how that, why you would think that way. But if you love your child enough to do what they need, you find a way to get what they need. And sometimes the parents often are not the solution. Well, just by being the parent. Right. <laughs> it's a pro- right? It's a problem. They cannot hear it from us. Yeah. Even if we have all the right things to say. I could say the same exact things that Pierre says, but because I'm mom saying it, <laughs> it's discounted. Or Right. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I also would like to emphasize that the, the choice of um, the choice we made to send our son to wilderness camp, you know, in hindsight, we believe was a very good choice at, in the moment, it was unbelievably difficult because it was much like what you articulated. It, it, it felt like we were capitulating and uh, not up to the challenge. <clears throat> and so the the realization that that was something he needed, uh, you know, was was very very tough. And you know, for me personally, I was hugely skeptical as to what would happen there, and uh, you know, challenged you know these these, these programs in any way I could. Um, but in the absence of better options, we opted into that. So uh, it was always something which we very carefully monitored. 
but in hindsight it was a it was a very good choice but very very tough choice at the at the time yeah so i would love to hear some of the things that you love about his neurodiversity that his uniqueness so i would like to i would like to start with that so the you know what i absolutely love is the fact that he can in a very unique ways focus on tasks at hand and when he focuses he is absolutely brilliant so when i sit down and i play chess with him there's absolutely you know for years now there's absolutely no question who's going to win the chess game and i know i know it ahead of time and it's just fine and uh, or he sits down and st- starts to draw or he sits down and wants to compose a song or he does you know something else that he he feels he wants to excel at um he does it it's uh, um something i absolutely love uh, love about him it's very uncompromising in the way he does it but he you know just absolutely excels uh you know at it um he i don't know whether this answers your question specifically um the other thing that i really love is that you know he has come around to realizing that he is neurodiverse um and he in many ways embraces it and you know quite openly speaks about it with us you know as we said earlier he you know probably a year ago you know came forward and thank patricia thank patricia and myself you know for what we had done which you know was was a was a, a very unique um a very unique moment um you know it was was kind of a catharsis <laughs> effectively um and so you know th- that's you know that's what i you know aside from the fact that i love him as a person but that's what i really love about you know his his uh, neurodiversity yeah it's it's so nice when they actually do like start to recognize it as they get older. I never thought I would hear that kind of thing from our son either, but he has many times now that now that he's older, he realizes what we did, what we went through and, and expresses appreciation. And it, it means a lot when they, and it's neat when they get to that point where they actually can see it too. When they're no longer in crises, right. Just trying to keep their nose out of the water, but they're drowning and they're, they're actually able to say, Hey, you guys were awesome. Thank you. Not all parents hear that, but most parents hear it after the majority of the battle is finished. And it doesn't mean it's you're done as parents, because all parents, even neurotypicals, they're never done parenting. Um, But getting through those tough teenage years is... Yeah. It's nice to know that he finally learned to love himself enough that he could have appreciation and gratitude instead of being in crises. And that's that's huge. I was not expecting that, tell you the truth. So it's like, not, not automatic. What um, do you love about his neurodiversity? Um, uh, I love about my son, his wicked sense of humor. He's like the master of puns and he can find humor in situations where it's like, wow, <laughs> just making me laugh. Um, and also he's very loving, you know, he, he does still give me a hug and that feels good. I, I appreciate that. You know? Yeah. He, he was actually very cuddly even at 20, you know, in 19 and 20 with, with us, he would love to just be touchy. And right. Right. So he's an atypical neurodiverse. <laughs> kid, right. right. Yeah. If you've met one person on the spectrum, yeah. Yeah, exactly. One person on the he's, spectrum. 
also extremely kind with animals. He really connects with them. Yeah. So two dogs, and it would drive us crazy if he would spend dinners under the dinner table cuddling with the dogs. But oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, he. Okay. Yeah, it's where you're on the dog bed, or you could find him under the table wherever they were. So, right. What would you suggest for other parents who are in the middle of the crises or just starting their journey, or maybe they didn't realize that their neurodiverse son or daughter is maybe they've just been diagnosed and they're thinking, Oh my gosh, what do we have ahead of us? What kinds of, I don't know, recommendations um, or suggestions, tips? What would you tell them if you could look back and talk to your your uh, ten years ago selves? If I can start on that, the ironically, just very recently with friends, we had a situation which had me reflect about that very same question. And the I I try to stay clear of making recommendations, um, but I offer thoughts. And I, I thought the the one thing that was the most striking to me was that the challenge to realize that the parenting you provide may not be entirely sufficient without other support, whatever form that support takes, that realization is really, really, really hard. And then the the second thing, um, which I reflected on a lot, is that the, I don't know whether it was you, Debbie, or Jason, who used the, the term reset, right? That in some ways, they need to find a, a reset, and that reset is is as hard on the parents as it is on on the, you know the neurodiverse uh, child. And so you know to have somebody that you can have a conversation with about that, even if it's no direct analogy, I think is is hugely helpful to find somebody who has lived through it and has you know kind of experienced. Uh, you know, it's not one crisis, right? It's basically a you know, never ending series of crises that you go through, um, uh, I think is, is, is helpful, you know, and pointing people in the right direction, getting them to think, I think is, is actually hugely gratifying. Yeah. I want to add to that. I think getting support or just talking with other parents who have been in similar situations has been extremely helpful. I, I don't think we would have dared to take the step of wilderness and therapeutic boarding school without talking to parents who were a few years ahead of us who have made that tough decision for themselves and who have seen some positive results. Um, and I think we also, we informed ourselves a lot. So we went to um, like support groups where we learned about in the beginning, also about mental illness, and then later about um, high-functioning autism, and found other parents. And um, I think that that support was very helpful. And to have a, a community for people who get it, right? Yes. And it, it's so hard because you get judged so much from other parents and from your own family, and um, and to have that understanding what you're really going through. And that this is not normal parenting to realize that too, right? And to to get support. So, I mean, I, I'm the master of uh, 
having a personal therapist and then a, a family therapist and <laughs> going to support groups. But without that, I don't think I, I could have managed for myself and for the whole family um, that, that process without major scars. Yeah. Right. Well, we very much appreciate you coming on our podcast for this episode because th- I think what you're talking about is another form of offering that support and other parents li- listening to this can hear your story and, and you're kind of on the other end now out, you know, going into the adult years. And does it feel like you can relax a little bit? Are you breathing better? Are you sleeping better now than a, a year or two ago? Uh, yes. I, I want to say something before I answer that question. So, so is to give back, uh, you know, through support groups, NAMI and others, uh, which I, you know, greatly greatly respect you know as as far as the the uh your question is concerned absolutely sleeping better you know there's still concerns you know is there still things that you know you know i would consider completely non-linear and have a hard time to to wrap my mind around absolutely there are right but by the same token at the same time there's now phone calls and there's texts and there's communication even if it's not the in the type of structure that my more normal brain, you know, would, would want to think about it. There's all that, which, you know, hasn't been there in the past and that alleviates some of the concerns and, you know, some of the perception of, of things being, being just um, unmanageable. Great. Thank you. So if I were a parent offering su- a suggestion, I would, I would mention that it's time to get your expectations in, in order in, be more realistic about keeping keeping your expectations high, but not so high that you or your child is destroyed um, from your expectations and being agile and just maximizing success and letting it be what it is. Um, I think a lot of my pain and suffering came from feeling like a bad parent because of my expectations and it always felt like there was there must be an answer or a solution. So then then there's blame and fear and anxiety that we haven't found it. So I guess that would be my my advice to parents is um, don't give up on your child and think, oh, they're, they're broken, so they'll always be broken. But more often than not, parents aren't willing to recognize that there really is a different way that has to be, that parents have to approach someone who's neurodiverse. Um, and it's not necessarily that they're broken, but when you're a square peg in a round hole world, you're going to have anxiety and depression. You're going to have rejection and isolation and trauma. And, and so trying to protect your child while meeting their needs is so hard. It, it sure is. I, something just resonated with me that you said, Jason. I, I think it's also important as a parent that you cannot fix your child. That there's... This is something your child will have to learn to deal with and to deal with being a a misfit in some respects or maybe not picking up on the social cues or maybe not having all the structural skills. Um, That there will be some deficiencies in a lot of areas. but And then also like the twice exceptional thing, like being made, some things may be very easy, right, for... Yeah. Um, our children, but we can't like fix them. They they need to find their own way. I'd like to say I'd like to say one more thing. The 
you know, to to Therese's question. So what what did we what did we learn? You know, one thing that I learned for me personally is that there's just no recipe. In you know, kind of the classic sense, you know, there's no book that says you know good parenting for neurodiverse children, <laughs> right? Uh, and there's a lot of people opining, and there's huge complexity. Obviously, there's a huge complexity of the expression of the of of the uh, you know neurodiversity, and you know, it's a it's the situation where only extreme empathy and to use your term agility really helps right that's been a huge frustration for me because i have a very algorithmic mind and so i would love to find you know that one recipe that works and uh, you know it was no. <laughs> a good frustration to realize that you know while there's a lot of smart people out there you know they're kind of grabbing this elephant at whatever body part they can find but nobody has really found a way to you know bring that to um, a recipe it's something that has to be found individually i think Right. Yeah. Oh, such a great point. And again, we're just so grateful to have you guys on. And um, oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. And, you know, thank you for your support of our son. Much appreciate that. Um, and, uh, yep. We, we love your son. And we love both of you. And thank you. <laughs> great examples to other parents out there. You give them hope. So the parents who are listening, if you're feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. You don't see it yet because you're still in the mud working and digging, but it's, it is a journey and it will get better and it'll be hard along the way. And I think with information and knowledge, you can get to that light faster. You can learn to have peace in the journey and not just at the end, which I think is so important. So thanks for joining us, Pat. And Matt. You. Thank you both. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com.